Amen. Hosanna in the highest. Now, next Sunday is Easter, right? We are taking a really big risk next Sunday. We're having two services. But the joy of this is your voices. So you got to come no matter which one and sing loud. Both. You can come to both. That's great. And you can charge up on donut holes in between. So uh, th there is a risk, and we understand the risk, but if we only get 20 more people for Easter, come on, folks. So we gotta, we got to fill the place both hours, and uh, we just love Jesus, and we want to proclaim His goodness. The, these, these sermons have been rather difficult, hard, sad, but not next week. It all changes on Sunday morning. So, praise God. So, we are near the end of Matthew. Got your Bibles? Get them out. As we do, we come face to face with the core doctrines of Christianity. Paul puts it this way, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared. And it goes on. The core doctrines of our faith are his death and his burial, his resurrection, and his appearances to many. Last week, we left the story as Jesus had just died, Matthew 27, verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And we had noted that the six hours on the cross saw Jesus as pretty passive. And we saw God the Father as pretty passive. In our Passion Week devotional, we're going to explore the seven things Jesus said from the cross. It starts today, by the way. I'll have one when I come up later. You need to pick one up on your way home, out the door, to get them. They begin today with the seven words or the seven phrases that Jesus speaks on the cross. But from the outside, nothing miraculous seems to be happening, it's, except for the darkness. From the outside, it looks like God's been on the sidelines throughout the entire suffering of Jesus. Where is he in all of this? Well, you have asked the same question. As you've had difficult days, times of suffering, where is he? But then as soon as Jesus lets his spirit go and he dies, God steps in and the miracles begin. We, to be honest, we don't know what to do with these verses. But we can't ignore them and we won't. And so these miracles, I think, teach us of, of the, the unique nature of the death of Christ. This isn't just the normal death. And they shout clearly, there's never been a death like this before or since. So we need to explore these miracles. Then we're going to look at the Gentiles, what, how they reacted, and then um, look at the burial of the body, which is a lot more important than we usually think. So let's start. The text opens. Jesus has died, but just barely. Verse 51 of Matthew 27. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. 
The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. (laughs) There's a fun little text to deal with. Let's start with the action of God. What are these miracles? There are a bunch of them. They happen in rapid succession. I've identified seven of them. God's no longer on the sidelines once Jesus dies. The death of his son has consequences. Miracle number one, the veil split. Or you probably heard it as the veil is torn. Verse 51, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, everything about the Jewish temple says, don't approach. Keep your distance. There were courts set aside outside for Gentiles. There was a court outside set aside for women. There's this brazen altar which the sacrifices are made. There are steps leading up to the temple. This is not an ADA-compliant structure. I think for a reason. Inside the temple, there's two main rooms. There's the holy place, and then farther inside, there's the most holy place or the holy of holies. Only priests enter the holy place, and they do their prescribed things. You didn't, this isn't Starbucks, you know, for priests. You don't just hang out in the holy place. You have certain things you have to do, and you do them. You come in to do the business of God, and then you leave. Important work is done there, but it's got to be done by the right people. And yet there's an even more sacred place behind the holy place. It's the most holy place or the holy of holies. And the heart of Jewish worship took place in the holy of holies. If you read Leviticus 16, you find out all the details. We summarize them, you know, only one man enters the holy of holies once a year. He could only enter on the Day of Atonement, and he had to be the high priest, nobody else. He had to wear special garments. He had to bring with him the, goat, the, the, the blood of a goat, and he sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat, which I've always wondered, who cleans it up? No one, I guess. That's a bloody mess after a long time. That's beyond the scope of this morning. If anyone entered besides the, whole, the, the high priest, they would be struck dead. If the high priest entered on any other day but the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, he was struck dead. If he, brought with, if he came in without the blood of a goat, he would be struck dead. See, everything about the Holy of Holies screams, stay out. God is not approachable. Don't come near. You can't do this on your own. It was as if the temple itself is a giant roadblock making sure that nobody would come into the presence of God unless they were invited. And just in case some new generation grew up and didn't really read Leviticus 16, God instructed what? A very thick curtain to be placed between the holy place and the most holy place. And this curtain was there, and it stood there for generations. And that's why Matthew, when he comes to this text, he says that that's the curtain between the holy of holies and the most holy, and the holy place. That curtain is torn from top to bottom. So it's not like they're down there and they're going to tear it themselves. This is a God thing. 
The thick curtain was torn from top to bottom. Something happened that only God could do. The law that had condemned us has come to an end. It was put to death on the cross of Christ. When Jesus died, the old law, it died with him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The road to heaven is open to anyone, anytime, anywhere. See, there's a message for us in this torn curtain in the temple. It's fear not. Don't let your sin keep you from God. The way is open. And the cross reveals the heart of God. And that heart is filled with his love. And when Jesus died, the father preached a sermon when he tore the curtain. And he said, you're welcome into my family. Miracle one. Miracle number two and three. They're lumped together from now on in pairs. Miracle two and three. The earthquakes and the rocks split. Verse 51. It's very simple, quite actually. The earthquake and the rocks were split. Earthquakes aren't good news. We live in earthquake country, right? Earthquakes are very common in Israel. There's like four tectonic plates, if you look at the science, and they all kind of come together in Israel. So they have a lot of earthquakes. The amazing part isn't the earthquake, it's the timing of the earthquake. God shook the earth when his son died. An earthquake shook Mount Sinai when God gave the law. And now there's an earthquake when Jesus dies at the end of the law. And the earthquake at Sinai reminded us that you cannot approach God on your own. And the earth shook beneath the cross as if to say that curse has been lifted. Romans 8. Here's one other thought. Anytime you have an earthquake, it's not business as usual anymore. We've all, I assume we've all experienced an earthquake. It stops us in in our tracks. And I think the scariest thing for us is that we realize we're really not in control. And perhaps this earthquake was God's way of saying to the world, stop, you're not in control of all of this. This is my son who died for you. But there's a second miracle here that we kind of skim over, and the rocks were split. Matthew uses the same verb to describe the splitting of the rocks and the splitting of the curtain. Same verb. Why? Well, it seems he wants us to know that there's more going on here than meets the eye. The curtain splitting has meaning, and the rocks splitting has meaning. The least we can say is that the death of Jesus affects more than just our spiritual relationships. It produces effects in the natural world. The rocks are splitting. And what has just happened on the cross has to do with the one who holds the earth in his hands and he can shake it. And he is the one who holds the boulders between his fingers and he can split them. The earth was shaken and the rocks were split by the one who controls the earth and who can split rocks anytime he wants. 
Normal human deaths do not shake the world and they do not split rocks. God does that. Rocks, have you noticed, they do not have a mind of their own. They do what God tells them to do. And at this moment, they shook and they split. Miracles 4 and 5. This is the juicy part. Well, not really. 6 and 7 are juicier. Tombs opened and bodies are raised. It says in verse 52, the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised to life. Now, let's just be honest. I'm not sure I can explain all of this and what happened here, but this much is clear. The earthquake split the rocks around Jerusalem and they apparently opened up some tombs and many saints or believers were then raised from the dead. What does that mean? Well, the graves were opened at 3 p.m. on Friday when Christ died. They remained open for the rest of Friday for people to see, but Sabbath begins, there's not much movement after that, and then all day on the Sabbath. It was a sign from heaven, I think, that death has been plundered. John Owens spoke about the death of death when Christ died. And so what happens? Death dies. How do you know? Well, people come back to life. And when death died, Christ died. Because he went into the realm of death and he came out holding the keys to death and Hades in his hands. Revelation 1, I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. I do not stand at a graveside, and I stand at my fair share of them in my line of work without thinking of the Resurrection Sunday. And I do not stand in this, in this space next Sunday morning without thinking of the people, the beloved saints, whom I have watched being lowered into the ground. Just as those saints will rise bodily, that is our hope. The day will come when our loved ones who knew Christ will rise from the grave, free from death, free from disease, free from corruption, to live forever. And the rising of the saints here is, is, I think it's kind of a first fruits of a future resurrection where the dead in Christ will rise when Christ returns. And you have one small sample in one small location, many, not all, many in Jerusalem, to tell us of the coming day when they would be raised, all of us, in triumph. And then the tombs will be empty forever. Miracles 6 and 7. Bodies leave the tombs and they appear around town. (laughs) It does sound strange the way Matthew tells this. He has the bodies or, or, or the tombs being opened and the bodies of the saints resurrected at the death of Christ. But the way he tells it, they stay there till after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 53, and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. Evidently, Matthew means that the tombs, they're opened on Friday, and the saints come out after the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday morning. 
Christ rises and comes out first. The saints then come out. I can't say how many were raised. I cannot tell you what happened to them. Did they live a full rest of their life? I don't know what happens. The text doesn't say. Apparently, if it was important, he would have told us. So it must not matter that much. But that statement of the, of the sequence is, and they appeared to many. Many saints raised, and they are seen by many. This isn't some solitary vision of somebody who just, you know, happened to, you know, eat, the, eat spoiled hummus or something, and, and they had a vision. No, many were raised bodies, and, and it was real, it was physical, it was public. There's a foretaste of what it will be like on the last day when all are raised. So, what are we supposed to learn from this? It seems to me that Matthew is showing us that the death of Christ is the cause of the resurrection life in our natural bodies. In narrative or story form, he is telling us what Paul will later teach us about the resurrection of Christ. It's the death of Jesus that becomes the foundation for our physical resurrection. Now, we need both the death and the resurrection to ensure our physical resurrection. I mean, the proof is in the fact that he rose from the dead. But the bodies are raised at Jesus' death, and the bodies come out of the tombs and into the city at his resurrection. Paul puts it like this, 1 Thessalonians 5. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. The death of Christ does that. The death of Jesus is the foundational and essential act of God to secure the resurrection of our bodies. You got to have the death. Hebrews 13, now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead Jesus our Lord, or our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip us with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing through him, through Christ Jesus, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, it's through the blood. And Matthew is showing us that when Jesus gave up his spirit, when he died, believers in God are raised from the dead. We owe our future resurrection to the death of Jesus because the greatest obstacle to our resurrection was removed at the cross. The greatest obstacle to our resurrection is not physical death. It is not the decay of the body. The greatest obstacle is, or was, our sin and our righteous and God's righteousness. God can put a decayed body back together with the wave of his little finger. But the righteous removal of the holy anger of God cost Jesus his life. God's no longer passive once Jesus hangs lifeless on the cross. But that's not all that our text says happens. Probably even greater than these seven miracles is what happens next. Number two, the faith of Gentiles. Verse 54, when the centurion and those with him 
It's not just him, it's the people under him who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened. They were terrified and said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Here's probably the biggest miracle of them all. The centurion who had played a crucial role in the death of Christ. A centurion leads a hundred men. He's, he's got some authority. He's, he's well-trained in, in battle, and he's proven. He wasn't just any soldier. He was a proven leader of men. He saw and heard everything at the cross, and he witnessed the darkness that fell over the earth, and he heard Jesus cry out, Why have you forsaken me? And more than that, Unlike the usual criminals who probably just die in agony, cursing, he heard that final cry, and then the earth shook and the rocks split in two, and that leads him to say, this was the Son of God. Here's the answer to Pilate and his, I don't know what to do. Here's the answer to all the mocking crowds who just made fun of him. Here's the answer to, to the Jewish leaders who wanted him dead and to Judas who betrayed him. They were all wrong about Jesus. But the centurion got it right. He somehow saw through the blood and the gore and the smell of death that, that hovered over Golgotha. And he saw the Son of God. While the Jewish leaders just saw a radical or a mystic or a troublemaker. See, Jesus' own people didn't believe. But the supervisor of the scene, the centurion, recognized who Jesus was in the same way that Peter recognized who he was just, I don't know, a month, two months ago, up in Caesarea Philippi. The centurion saw the sonship of Jesus in the cross, and the disciples appear to have ignored the cross and are nowhere to be found. And the gospel has come full circle. The religious leaders have missed the religious significance of Jesus. But the pagans, who you would expect to miss it, have understood and embraced his true identity. As it was at his birth, so it is at his death. Pagan men from the east showed up to worship him when he was born. And the Jewish leaders did what? They, they got together with Herod to make sure <laughs> no good comes out of this. What's the takeaway? Well, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. And I think Matthew is trying to say, not trying, is saying this. Regardless of the response of the Jewish religious leaders, you need to share the message with the Gentiles. They're going to listen. They are the ones who will hear it, so share it. And Matthew's message, it's got to resonate with us today. Although church people, we often live in disobedience to the gospel, and sometimes we take Jesus for granted, but we still have to take Jesus beyond the walls of the church and share him with the world around us. In our culture, a natural point of invitation is next Sunday morning. Who are you going to share with the hope that you have? 
We're going to start a journey class in two weeks. For those who come next Sunday who just might be interested, God leading them somehow to figure out faith and explore it in their lives. And yes, we are going to show that video again. You know which one I'm talking about. Where he's sitting at the, at the fast food place, you know, with the... I love that thing. And it's not for you. It's not for you. So you might have just seen it 20 times. Oh, well. You know how many times you watch commercials on TV? Come on. Because maybe, just maybe, there might be a centurion among us who will say, I really do want to explore my faith. And we want to provide that opportunity for them. So pray. So God springs into action after Jesus dies. Gentiles express faith. Kind of amazing. But there's a problem. The body of Jesus is still on the cross. Number three, the guardians of the body. We finally make it, finally make it to the second core doctrine, you know, the death of Christ. Now we're finally to, he's buried, all right? We get to there, finally. We don't usually give the burial much thought, but the gospels actually do. We just move from death to resurrection. What happened Friday night and Saturday, they don't really think about it much. So we're going to move today, and, and actually what I want to do, I haven't figured out if it's possible yet. Well, anything's possible. I want to talk about burial Friday night after we've said commun- we've had communion and we've done anything. I, I want to talk about why it's so important that he was buried. But this morning, I just want to, I want to look at the text a little bit and, and, and figure, out, figure out what's really going on here, okay? Because what strikes me about the, the description of the burial is, first of all, the actors. Who are these people? Who's involved in this? Because the identity of who is involved in his burial is a significant part of the story. When John the Baptist died, if you look back, you'll see his disciples, they risked a lot to get his body without a head and and to bury it. They had some courage. So you really sort of expect the same thing of the disciples of Jesus here. But you'd be wrong. There's no courage here. Who's involved? It's the women. And someone we've never met and will never meet again, Joseph. No, not that Joseph. Although both of these Josephs, one at the beginning and one at the end, they never say a word. They just do their thing. Verse 55, many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. At the end of his life, it's the women, not the disciples, who were at the cross. Well, we know John was there because he talks to John. We really don't know if the others were there or not. But give him some credit. If Jesus is a traitor and they're in his small band, who's next? If this doesn't go well, which it isn't going well. But they had supported him, these women, during his ministry. So now they stay with him to the very bitter end. Who are they? Well, there's Mary Magdalene. Mary from Magdala, which is a small town on the the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. There's Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, not mentioned anywhere else in Matthew. And the mother of Zebedee's sons. Well, who is that? Well, the sons of Zebedee are... are, um, 
Come on. James and John. Okay? The sons of thunder. And so they're there. I don't know if that's correct. James and John. Bingo. Verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph's a good man in a very hard place. Because of his wealth and apparently of his position, he's, he's got to be kind of a leading man in the community. We know from other Gospels he's part of the Sanhedrin. Well, that probably ended after this evening. <laughs> They're not going to put up with that. And so he approaches a pilot really as a testimony to his courage. At the very moment when the disciples, except John, had deserted at least, he alone steps up. I want the body at great personal cost. But there's a small piece of historical information you need to know. What's the Roman preference for bodies on a cross? Let them rot on the cross. They left them there, and they left them to rot. So Pilate, he must have thought he was done with this whole Jesus thing. I mean, remember, he'd washed his hands of the matter. He was done. And now somebody else is coming back? Come on, just leave the body there and let it rot. And given the, the raging hatred that led to the crucifixion, Joseph puts himself in a rather dangerous position. But Pilate gives him permission. thought he was innocent anyway. Might as well let him do what they want. And so once Pilate gets the permission, he purchases a, a, a linen shroud, takes the body with, we know from other places, with Nicodemus, and helped take the body down. Verse 59, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean, cloth, clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. This body had to have been it was in bad shape when they took it down from the cross. It's got the stab wound. It's got the nail marks. It's got a, a raw flesh hanging off his back, covered with blood. And Joseph and Nicodemus, they wrap it in strips of cloth. And because they had to bury Jesus before sundown, I mean, what are you going to do with this? What would you do? The funeral home's not open, you know? He had a tomb, a new tomb, close by. And so they take him there, freshly dug out of a rock garden. And when they finish placing the body inside, they roll a stone across the entrance. Verse 61 says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. What are they doing with our Savior? I'm going to stop our movement through the text at this point. The rest of the chapter really just does one simple thing. It begins the apologetic discussion about how we're going to believe in the resurrection. The Jews hatch a plan to, just, to, to deny the resurrection just in case, or if the disciples fake it, you know, we got to do something here. And they did what they could, and the sealed stone had been rolled across the tomb's mouth, and they, they sealed it up. There's no way, you know, they're going to break the seal. So they post some Jewish guards. And if anyone could be trusted, it would be them. See, they did what they could to secure the tomb and to keep this whole narrative from, from getting out of control. But they're going to learn what? How can anyone secure anything against the shattering power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? No matter what you do. 
So, let me go back to the question I promised I would deal with last Sunday. Why is God so late with all these miracles? I will quote a great preacher from last Sunday who said, before he dies, the, the passive son is matched by a passive God. They both kind of just step back and watch the scene. But after Jesus dies, things change, and God will fight for the one who has not fought for himself. The mystery is only why God seems so late in coming to the table. And I said we'd explore it this Sunday, so here I are. Here I are. Here we are. I think the better question is probably, why does it seem to us like God is so late coming to the table? There are no miracles because something is supposed to happen and something else actually is happening. Jesus is supposed to die and he is supposed to die all alone. This is all the plan of God, all of it. The beatings, the mockings, the crown, the silence, the nails, the thirst, the darkness. See, the plan of God is for Jesus to die. And after spending time in Matthew 27, I read 1 Peter 1 just to get some perspective. And don't forget, who wrote 1 Peter? Duh. Peter. And who is Peter? The disciple. He says in verse, chapter 1, verse 17, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. It's the introduction. He says, live in fear because God judges accurately. You're here briefly, so fear God. Verse 18, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you, from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. When Peter says you were redeemed, he uses a word that describes the, the old slave markets in the first century. You were bought and paid for with a price. And when Jesus died on the cross, that blood, that awful scene, set us free from the slave market of sin. And of all the words that believers use to, to describe Jesus, there isn't really one more precious than Redeemer. We use Lord, we use Savior, but nothing touches the heart like the name Redeemer. It reminds us of the cost He paid to save us. Redeemer is the name of Christ on the cross. We remember not only that he gave us salvation, but that he paid for it with an awful price. And why are there no miracles while he's on the cross? Because he had to finish the work of Redeemer. That is how far the Father and the Son were willing to go to purchase our freedom from sin. And then Peter puts it all in context in verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. God planned our salvation before he created the world. The sin in the garden is not an oops moment. Now what do I do? 
The coming of Christ was never an afterthought in the plan of God. In fact, the very opposite is true. Before the universe was created, God knew what was going to happen. And he knew we were going to sin and ruin and destroy the world. And in the councils of eternity, the Father said to the Son, you must go to the earth to save them from their sin. Redemption was on God's heart long before sin entered the world. And so there's no miracles at the cross. Save the darkness. As the sun was dying on the cross because it's all been planned out. The star which led the wise men to the manger is replaced by the darkness at Calvary. And as Jesus hung experiencing the anger of God on the cross for us, that's what's going on. There could be no miracle. And now he is buried. And we wait. I'm looking forward to exploring next week. Or this week, actually, starting today. The seven things Jesus says on the cross through the devotional. I hope you are too. On Friday, after we've walked through the story of the Passion, we've taken the Lord's table. We're going to do the end of this sermon. And talk about why the burial is so important. We're not going to get there today, but we will, Lord willing, on Friday. For I received what I passed on to you, which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried. And what's the application today? What's the take-home? I don't know. I do know. I just want us to step back and take a look at what's going on in Matthew. In the darkness before Jesus died, he paid it all, all of it. And you think that God's primary goal for you is now you've got to live up to that standard. Or you have to be an example of moral goodness and not a trophy of grace. You'll never be honest about your sin and the deepest needs in your heart. You'll always feel the need to pretend that you're better off than you really are. Because as we look at the cross, Jesus was strong for me. So I'm free to be weak. Because Jesus won it for me, I'm free to lose. Because Jesus succeeded for me, I'm free to fail without the fear that God will stop loving me. Because Jesus was good for me, I can admit all my bad. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Soak in the moments of Passion Week ahead of us. That's the application. Take time for the devotionals, the songs that are there, the hymns that have been selected, the scriptures and pray for next Sunday and the opportunities that we will have to share the story of Jesus. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that we can build our lives on a solid rock, a rock that is not dependent upon our behavior.
and us saying and doing the right things, but that we can be honest before you because of what Christ has done. We have a rock on which to stand that will not falter. Because you were good, I can admit my badness. Because you succeeded, I can fail and know that you still love me. Because of your strength in enduring all that without a miracle, I can be weak because of you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.